Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Those three words have sent millions to their grave. People have died for that belief. Jesus is Lord. People who are unwilling to stand before a governor or a king, those in authority, and deny their allegiance to Jesus as the supreme authority went to their death because of it. But Jesus as Lord has saved millions upon millions of souls and reunited them to their Father in heaven. Jesus in his life, if you survey the Gospels, was called Lord a lot of times. Sometimes by people that didn't really believe in him or really know who he was. The word Lord initially just sort of um, conjures up an idea of respect, like you and I would use the word Sir or Mr. He would use the word Lord. So they would come to Jesus and call him Lord out of respect. But what comes to happen in the Gospels, eventually he's called Lord out of awe and admiration. You see, they saw this wonderful teaching, serving person die on a cross, go into a grave, and yet three days later, there's this collection of people who see him back alive, resurrected from the dead. It was Thomas who gives us the greatest picture. Thomas, one of his apostles, who told the rest of the guys, hey, listen, I'm not going to believe until I see this guy. I just won't do it. I don't know what you're saying about him being raised. I hear what you're saying, but I think you're seeing visions or a ghost or you're dreaming. I'm not going to believe until I see him and I touch the prints where the scars are. And he shows up and there's Thomas and there's Jesus. And Jesus reaches out his hands and he touches his hands, probably his wrists. And he touches the side where the scar is from the spear that went in. And Thomas says these words, my Lord, my God. He's saying, You are the creator, but now that I've seen this, you own my life. My Lord, my God. Jesus' Lord is the bedrock message of Christianity. Acts 2.36, at the end of preaching about Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter said, let everyone know, all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God has made this Jesus, Lord and Christ, Paul would say in Romans 10, verse 9, that unless you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead, you can't be saved. Jesus is Lord is not the church's only doctrine, okay? There's a lot of doctrines. But Jesus is Lord is the first doctrine and our last doctrine. That if you don't get this from start to finish as your foundation, we miss it all. Two things I want to unearth together in our minutes time together. Two things. Number one, Jesus as our Lord, this one Lord is difficult, but it's also delightful. We got to understand both. Let's start with the fact that it's difficult. Jesus as our Lord, one Lord, only one, is difficult. It's a challenging thing. It's difficult, first of all, because of its meaning. What does it actually mean? As I mentioned before, it kind of offends our sensibilities. As humans, first of all, we as humans don't like people, not us, telling us what to do. We bristle at this idea of something above us, greater than us, dictating to us how we live, how we think, how we act. We, we sort of resist against that. This word Lord means sovereign, strength, power. It means master or owner. It speaks to the relationship of a creator, and it's created. 
It speaks about authority and deity, governor and ruler. A Lord is one who is in charge by virtue of ownership. Not just conquering like a military leader comes in and says, you weren't mine first, but now I'll conquer you, now you're mine. The idea of Lord is one who is in charge by virtue of ownership. We use this word as we speak about somebody who rents an apartment or a house, they have a land Lord, right? That person is in charge of that facility because they own it. We experience this in all kinds of different ways. When you have a parent or a guardian in your life, they have a sort of lordship relationship. They tell you what to do and where to go. A a person who rents from a home, they have a landlord, a boss. If you have a boss in your life, somebody who sort of dictates where you work and how you work and what you work, that operates sort of like a, a lord. If you ever rent a car, you ever been at the counter desk at a renting a car? How many papers do you have to sign, right? And do you want because they own the car, and you're agreeing to use what is theirs. That's lordship. So lordship is difficult because of what it means. It challenges us as humans, and even as Western Americans who have our ethos in independence, separate from something governing over us. And so it challenges us to come under this understanding of Jesus as Lord, not just because of its meaning, but also because of its demand. Jesus as Lord places demands upon you that you've got to reconcile, that you've got to deal with. It's not enough for us just to learn that Jesus is Lord and acknowledge it. We have to learn how to actually live that. Jesus himself in Luke 6 said this to the people following him, Why do you call me Lord? but you won't do the things I tell you to do. Why in the world would you call me a Lord and then not do what I tell you to do? So as we address him as Lord, we have to really take serious the evaluation of are we actually living the way he calls us to live? The demand of Jesus as Lord is high. Jesus being Lord of all, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He said at the end of his life when he was ready to ascend that God has given him authority above on heaven and on earth. He's Lord of it all. He's Lord of the living and the dead. So wherever you go, everything is under his rule and his reign. When he raised from the dead, the Bible says in Ephesians 1 that God placed him at the throne as the head of the church. And all things are under his feet. He is Lord of everything. That means if he is your Lord, he is the Lord of your conduct. Yes, the way that you live, the way that you act. Jesus Christ is the Lord of how you live. He calls the shots. How you and I live our life, how we treat people. Jesus is not a consultant that advises on how you live. He is a commander telling you what to do. That's a relationship that you've got to figure out with him. That he is not just one of many that you consider and listen to. He is the commander that tells you how to live your life. Jesus is Lord not just of our conduct, but our relationships. Our relationships, yes. The people that we relate to, He is Lord of that. He is the Lord of the friends that you decide to keep. He is Lord over those that you want to date. He is Lord over those that you should marry. Jesus is Lord on over how you are as a child to your parent. He is Lord how you treat your spouse as a spouse. He is Lord over that. Jesus is Lord of you as a parent to your children. He's governing that. He's the Lord how you are as an employee at your business. 
He's the Lord over you as a business owner, how you interact with people. Jesus Christ is Lord over your relationships. He's Lord over your, uh uh-oh, time. Your time. Time is the resource of availability. And the question Jesus has is, how are you stewarding? How are you using that time? I want to press on you just a little bit here. Just consider how you decide how you use your time. You wake up every day, everybody has the same amount of hours, minutes, and seconds in a day, in a month, in a year. Everyone has the same amount, right? And when you become a Christian, Jesus Christ is Lord of your time. And when you wake up each day, how involved is he with where you make your commitments of time? Does he influence that? Does he impact that? Has the lordship of Jesus made you look at an opportunity or a situation and say, I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to commit my time to that because it would take away from something else, maybe more important, more valuable. Jesus Christ is Lord of our time. He's Lord of our talents. Talents are the resource of not availability, but ability, what you can do. Gifts and talents are from him and they're for him. The way that you're wired, the things that you've learned, the skills that you've developed, he's saying, I'm Lord of those things. I want you to use them and leverage to my kingdom. Jesus is Lord of your treasures. Let me explain what this means. I want you to conjure up in your mind the things that you cherish most in your life. Here's how you figure it out. What do you think about most? When you have nothing to think about, what comes into your mind? What do you dream about most? What do you hope for most? What do you envision most? Is it maybe do you dream and think a lot about your career? And maybe that's most important to you. Think about maneuvering in your next step. Think about what's most important to you. Do you think about your wealth? Are you constantly worrying over building the right amount of wealth or income to be able to retire at a certain age or be able to do certain things? Are you constantly thinking about that? Are you always worried about what people think about you, your reputation, your status? Are you concerned with constantly thinking about your possessions, what you've acquired? What do you think about all the time? Your home, do you constantly think about the key relationships in your life, your spouse or your children? Here's the question. Whatever you treasure, would you be willing to commit to Jesus above all those? Would you be willing to commit those things in your life to Jesus as Lord? You see, there's this really kind of unnerving story in the Bible, Genesis 22, where Abraham, and what we basically understand from Abraham is that he was a successful guy. He was wealthy. He was regarded amongst all the people that he interacted with. The guy hung out with kings and princes and, and rulers of the world, and he traveled all over the world, and people respected him. In fact, the king of Salem um, came to him and actually saw him as an advisor and offered to him um, a tithe, okay? Abraham. For 30 years, we think, about 25 or 30 years, begged God for a son, for a child. Finally, he's given one, Isaac. And there's Isaac. And Abraham loves Isaac more than he loves God now. He adores him. He worships him. He hangs on Isaac, the meaning of his life and the significance of his life. He now has Isaac, and his life is complete. And God comes to him in chapter 22, and he says, Take Isaac, your son, your only son, and take him up on the hill and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And we hear that, and it's crazy. 
What is God doing? And Abraham is alerted, takes him up, lays him on the altar, and just before he offers him, God stops him, and there he provides a sacrifice. And here's the point. Until you're willing to give God everything, he can't give back to you blessings so that you could use those in his service. Until he has what has you, he doesn't have you. And so you've got to press yourself and say, okay, does Jesus Christ have all my conduct, my relationships, my time, my talents, my treasures? Is he the Lord of all these things? As you can see, I told you, this is difficult. But what you'll find is as you begin to experience Jesus as Lord, it becomes delightful. Peter tells us this way. He says that you and I ought to leave sinful conduct. We ought to desire the milk of the word of God to grow up into maturity. And he puts a condition on it. He says, you'll leave sin and you'll pursue God in 1 Peter 2, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Lord, the governor, the ruler of all, if you've experienced that he's good. You see, Jesus as Lord might frustrate you. It might scare you. But when you experience it, you'll figure out that it finally frees you it becomes delightful the lordship of jesus is delightful because of where he leads you jesus is constantly leading you. he wants to direct your life he wants to guide you i don't know where he's going to take you he might take some of you here to another place another city another town another state to another job i don't know where he's going to take you he may have some of you stay here for a long period of time but i know this that he's constantly leading us away from harm and into health Meaning this, that he wants to take us away from that which steals our joy and that which hurts us and into a greater and stronger relationship with him. There are times that you're going to bump into Jesus and not want to go where he wants you to go, not want to live the way he wants you to live, but where he leads you and how you live and where you live is for your good. And you'll find out if you follow him, but you've got to test him in that. It's delightful because of where he guides us. It's delightful also because of what he gives us. Jesus now, if you can picture in your mind, is the Lord. All things are his. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, that he is the giver of all good things, but he has, at the very center of what he gives us, the two most important things that you want. Jesus Christ gives us perspective and satisfaction. He gives us peace, and he gives us joy. When markets crash, when elections go sideways, when you lose a job or a person that's important to you, Jesus says, listen, don't fret, don't be afraid. Remember, I am the Lord over all. So when you've lost something that's valuable to you, or when you're uncertain about what's coming in the future, Jesus says, I give you a whole new perspective about life. That's why he says, I give you my peace, not peace from the world, but my peace. I am Lord, I am ruler, I am governor. He also gives you satisfaction. You know, Jesus is the only one in the world who is big enough to satisfy you with no end. Every other well that you run to, to get satisfaction, career and purpose and meaning and relationships, all these things that we run to in our life will eventually run dry. They don't have the capacity to fill us full with joy. They might give us moments and pieces of joy, but Jesus Christ as Lord is the never-ending source of joy. That's why he gives us satisfaction. He promises, I have overcome the world and I will share my eternal inheritance with you. Jesus as Lord is delightful because of where he guides you, what he gives you, but ultimately 
because of what he guarantees. Now, he is Lord, ruler, governor, sovereign. The whole world is his jurisdiction. And he guarantees two things for you. Really, really important things. Number one, your outcome will be good. Now, that's kind of a bold statement, right? If I stood up here and told you, that's why sometimes those promises feel empty. If I just told you, hey, everything's going to work out fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's cool. It's empty because you look at me and say, hey, man, you don't control how these outcomes go. You don't know how this is going to take place. Your wisdom and foresight and even power and ability are limited. So when you say, it's all good, man, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. You look at me and go, I don't believe that. I'm worried, I'm afraid, I'm concerned. And yet, Jesus says this, to those who love him, all things work together for good. Doesn't say for pleasure, doesn't say for enjoyment, doesn't say everything's great and easy and wonderful. There is no promise in Scripture that your life will be fine, always and easy. But he says, everything you experience, I will work to your good and God's glory. That's a guarantee that your outcome will be good. But he also promises this. And here's why it's most important that he's Lord. Your obligation is met. Your obligation. You might be, well, what obligation, right? What did I promise? What did I need to fulfill? You see, there's this deep and unspoken reality that's shared amongst every human being that exists in this world. Doesn't matter the nation you live in, doesn't matter the generation or time in which you live, every person has experienced this deep, unspoken reality of the experience of what the Bible calls sin. Sin is simply the departure from living the way that God has designed us to live, and every human has done that. And when that comes, we see there's two basic effects that come with sin that's guilt and shame guilt is i know i've done something wrong i was supposed to do this and i did this i know that i'm wrong i haven't met my obligation shame is i am wrong now that i've done something wrong i'm probably not acceptable i've broken the rules i've missed the mark as harold said and now i'm no longer able to be received or accepted and we spend the rest of our lives trying to outrun guilt and shame or try to outdo guilt and shame trying to prove that we're worth something or prove that we're not less than. And it drives the engine of our hearts. It's this obligation to right wrongs and prove ourselves acceptable. Every human has this churning in them. See, we have to see ourselves constantly in a courtroom. We've got this prosecutor. If you can picture a courtroom scene, you've got a judge, you've got a prosecutor, you've got a defendant, and if you can get this image in your mind, there's this judge, and we see ourselves as the defendant. And there's this prosecutor who's listing off all of your offenses. Yes, the ones that people don't even know about, but you know about. The things you've done wrong, the attitudes you've had that are wrong, the actions you've taken. And this prosecutor is listing off all these offenses. And most of us spend our entire lives in the defendant chair trying to defend ourselves against those charges. Through denial, through balancing the scales, promising to do better, or just through escaping them. And here's what Jesus wants you to know. I have jurisdiction over that courtroom. It's mine. That's my courtroom. And as the prosecutor is rattling off the case against you for all that you've done wrong, here's what takes place in this courtroom that Jesus owns. Before you begin to defend yourself, Jesus the judge says, yes, prosecutor, everything you've said about this person is absolutely right. 
They've done all these things that are wrong. And he doesn't say, but in my courtroom, we don't worry about laws. We don't worry about wrong. Just go ahead and go free, defendant. Don't worry about it. And he doesn't do that. The judge steps out of his chair as the judge and says, this whole list of wrong is absolutely forbidden. And I will take the punishment for that wrong. And he looks to the defendant and he says, hey, listen, this case is closed. This case is solved. The punishment's been met. Now you can go free. Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied the justice of God by dying for the sin of the world. And in the very same moment, saved by mercy sinners who come to him. That's why Paul could, could say in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. He would later say in chapter 8, who can bring a charge against the elect of God, the chosen of God? Who can do that? Who in the world can condemn God's children? This is his courtroom. He is the judge. He's saying, who can do that? So why do people still live in the courtroom of condemnation, trying to prove themselves, trying to be somebody? One reason. Jesus Christ isn't Lord yet. I don't care if you've been coming to this building for 20 years. If you still live with the internal engine that you've got to prove yourself, defend yourself, be righteous enough to impress somebody, Jesus Christ still isn't your Lord. You might have qualified him down to a being that you worship, but he's not Lord yet. You see, whoever condemns you in your life is your Lord. Get that? Whoever in your life right now that condemns you is your Lord. If it's a family member, they're your Lord. If it's a boss, it's your Lord. If it's your friends, society, your neighbors, they're your Lord. You know the most frequent offender of condemnation to you? Yourself. See, when you step into the courtroom, what you see is the judge... And you look over to the prosecutor who's rattling off all these charges against you. And who do you see? You see you. Beating yourself up. Tearing yourself up. That's why John said this in 1 John 3, 19 and 20. He said, even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Here's what he's saying. I don't even care if you're the prosecutor who's saying all these charges against you. God is greater than even your heart. In that courtroom, does the prosecutor say innocent or guilt? He doesn't. He just makes a case. It's the judge who says innocent or guilty, right? So when you even condemn yourself, God says, I'm greater than your heart. So tomorrow when you feel guilty and you feel like you've got to prove something to somebody, you feel like you've got to make something of yourself, you tell your heart to shut up. You say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm not even my own Lord anymore. And he has stepped off the judge seat to take the punishment. And he looks at me and he says, now go free. Live out of gratitude and let me guide you the rest of your life. Sanctify him in your heart as Lord. Give him everything. If you give him everything, he'll then be able to give you all things. But he's got to be Lord. He can't be anything less. Let's stand and sing. If you have a need, let's come.